Not too long after his vicious betrayal of the society and our abduction into the now-defunct cinema palace somewhere in that one flyover state, Verifier Andy personally tried to make up for his betrayal to me by arranging an interview with someone relevant to the conclave we'd just held, puppeteer extraordinaire Mike Quinn. Best known for his portrayal of Nine Nun in that one movie about the return of a space wizard and his trusty laser sword, Mr. Quinn is better known to us in the Cinemania Society as the puppeteer who got the talking boil to do its thing and how to get ahead in advertising, which as you'll hear was a bit of a surprise to him. We're grateful to Mr. Quinn for his generosity, both of time and of spirit. Presented here for your listening pleasure is the complete and unedited interview with Mike Quinn. With special thanks to Gabe DeColaita. Welcome. Um, I want you to take a second and introduce yourself, please. Me? Well, okay. Let's see. Well, I'm Mike Quinn. And uh, let's see, I've been a puppeteer uh, for something like 43 years now, hired by Jim Henson. Uh, in the UK, and I've worked on all kinds of movies and TV shows and done some animation, um, and I'm still crazy enough to still be doing it, I guess. <laughs> so that's me. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so we, we took a quick look through your IMDb and your and your Wikipedia, and so it looks like you worked on a lot of really iconic films and franchises that began in the 80s and 90s, and, you know, the, the kind of movies that stick around in the memories of their viewers for decades, really what we might call really strong sources of cinemania. Uh, the Muppets, Dark Crystal, Willow, uh, whatever that one series was that everyone kind of forgot. I don't remember what it was called. It was <laughs> yeah. the, the one with the space wizards <laughs> and the laser swords and had like British Robocop and Crawford's vacuum hmm. cleaner. I, I have a vague memory of it being very Battlestar Galactic meets Harry Potter. I don't remember the title. That's very manic, manic. Well, Something IMDb like though, you got to watch out because IMDb is always is known for being so inaccurate. And yeah. um, I, I've kind of almost given up on it now because I was always trying to to uh, correct it, and it's the most sort of awkward thing in the world. And then other people, I guess, keep coming in and adding credits that are wrong. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff in there still that is is wrong that I didn't do, and a bunch of things that I have put in that I did do that have been removed. So it's a bit weird. I think one many years ago, maybe in the early IMDb days, they had me as appearing in Cat in a Hot Tin Roof with <laughs> Cary Grant. And maybe really? I should have <laughs> that one in. I mean, you know, if only, I would have right? kept that, definitely. I should have kept that one. So yeah. it's not the best source of info for sure. It's uh, definitely the Wikipedia. Hitchhiker's Guide of of uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or sorry, Hitchhiker's Guide to the to Showbiz. It, you know. Oh uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, it sort of has some truths in there at times, and it's yeah, it's so the, there's not one source on the interwebs that's completely accurate uh, for for what I've done yet, but I, I will change that soon. Well, that's why we like uh that's why we like to go straight to the source uh what was exactly. your favorite movie to work on do you have a favorite movie oh yeah you it's all folks um <laughs> let's see hang on a minute i had a meltdown there <clears throat> so many okay, favorite yeah, movies <laughs> yeah it does uh, sometimes it's the, like the last thing that i i worked on just because uh it's sort of freshest in my memory and i and i just you know enjoy hanging out with friends and just being on set and it's 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 fresh in my mind really so that's always exciting so that sort of for a while becomes my favorite thing but i suppose i mean i get i do get asked this a lot and i think i sort of have to go back to my first love as it were um when i very first started uh i was a big muppet fan and so when jim henson hired me uh there, suddenly I was working with my heroes and working these iconic Muppets and learning the trade uh, on film. 
And, uh, you know, so The Great Muppet Caper was my first project. And uh, I still, I mean, I, I think very fondly of them all, but but of course that one is very special because it was my first. And, I, you know, I, it, it launched me into everything else that I do uh, now. So without that, nothing else could have happened. And it was just so magical. I mean, you know, assisting Kermit uh, and Ralph, uh, helping out Jim and Frank and and doubling up for these main characters and, and just learning on the job. There, there, there was no school at that time to learn that stuff. So, so uh, yeah, you had to learn on the job, basically. Uh, so, no yeah, uh, maybe that one, maybe the Great Muppet Caper. Huh. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that actually, my kids love that film. <laughs> I have a five-year-old <laughs> and an eight-year-old. They love the Great Muppet Caper. Um, that's cool, yeah. But um, what um, um, you know, that's actually a good place. Why don't you tell? Can you, since you were saying about IMDb being so inaccurate, uh, can you give us just a quick thumbnail sketch of your career? Like, as you know, like you said, it's inaccurate. How do things look? Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's this. Uh, I mean, apart from the, the sort of the main movies that sort of for the most part are out there, um, there there's been a lot of TV shows, uh, series, uh, a lot of pilots. I've, I've directed a lot of things as well. Um, that that won't be up there, um, and pilots that that don't get made into TV series, and pilots that do. Um, so there's been a lot of that stuff. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of commercials, some things I've, I'm sure I've forgotten uh, already. Uh, plus, I have had my own uh, puppet company. Uh, Dave Barkley and I we we uh, were partners together in, in a business over here for about pretty much ten years in the UK, where we built, uh, designed, built animatronics and puppets, and uh, uh, we made some things for other companies and pitched for some big shows. Uh, we pitched for Babe, the first Babe movie, and we pitched <clears> for rebuilding the Barney costumes as well. But but otherwise, we did stuff for ourselves and, and produced our own shows as well with our own characters and that kind of thing. So uh, for the UK, uh, um, so that stuff I don't think is up there either. Um, and of course, all the you, new stuff um... that I'm not... Do, do you think you have any sort of pilots rattling around in your head that might have been but never quite got there that you'd still wish you could go back and revisit? Oh, gosh, there's loads. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, dozens. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll never run out of ideas. Never, and things. never quite let them go. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then sometimes things just kind of come back around again. You know, they have their everything has its time. Mm. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things, especially recently, that have been kind of rattling around in the back and sort of hitting me from the inside and saying hello don't forget about me so uh yeah that's which is exciting because that's often a lot more personal uh to me um uh, but the landscapes change you know back in the day you had to sort of pitch a, a pilot to a broadcaster or a network and now it's you know that they're almost the minority now you can mm. there are so many other ways to get a show made so it's great yeah, it's uh, the the landscape is is really different, really really different. Even even just like the past couple of years, like I had a I had a feature project that I was uh, uh, I had gotten greenlit um, to the tune of four and a half mil, somewhere around there. And the budget came back at like the, the, and and basically we were getting ready to go, and then mm. the pandemic hit, and mm. all the funding <sighs> dried up. Like all the, yeah. you know, like, like everything was completely changed. We had to put everything on hold and it just never quite came back together. Um, and then like once everybody, the kind of dust settled and everybody started looking at like, okay, here's, you know, here's how things look, you know, here's the new paradigm with uh, the, the COVID controls, you know, um, yeah. like, yeah. 
just just the way things get pitched, you know, who's distributing what. It, it's like things were beginning to move toward toward streaming as the dominant you know distribution paradigm anymore. But but like the 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 pandemic really like supercharged that. Like nobody was going to theaters, so it's yeah. And audiences, viewers are a lot more. I I think split now too. You know, I mean, they've yeah. got a lot more places to go. Yeah. So so each each uh, channel, each company, each broadcaster, each streamer. Uh, has probably less revenue than they would have had 10 years ago, you know, and, and more, yeah. uh, even five to, for that matter, I guess. So, uh, you know, the money is being spread a little thinner now as well, perhaps. Yeah, there's there's a screen in everybody's pocket. So everybody's competing for, for yeah, it's it's surprising. Like they, there's there's never been a more demand for, for visual media. And and yet at the same time, the money is is that much harder to get. Yeah, um, the the good thing is, I mean, I I think there there's there is still a place for every kind of everything here for everyone. You know, we there's a place for the for the this kind of stuff one on one, and the, there's there's also a a place for for um uh, the the you know right from the small small scale of, of home studios right up to to big budget productions. There's, there's still going to be a need for all those things and everything in between. Oh yeah. Well, uh, speaking of that, actually, I think this this uh, on on that like you you kind of made a good point. This is something I was thinking about asking you, but but it uh, this seems like a natural place to to throw this in. Um, like you're you're really kind of uniquely positioned, I think, uh, for for visual you know for for visual storytellers in that you came up when everything was analog, everything was practical, but you were there working as things were transitioning into the digital world and you're still working as things are kind of coming into a hybrid. So I wonder if you might be able to tell us a little bit about like uh, the transition from practical to digital and then sort of back again, which you, know, which you feel is most convincing to an audience. Um, and then, you know, like what, how, like what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, no, that's a, a really good question. And, and the answer is different sort of every six months, you know, because it, of course it keeps changing. But I mean, I do remember back around the, it was the early to mid eighties, um, hearing that, um, George wanted to replace film. It, it wasn't ready yet. It wasn't a thing, but, but he was looking to, to replace film and that everyone was saying it'll never happen. It's a terrible idea. You know, no, no, you know, the, the traditional industry was kicking back from that a bit, but also at the same time, was from this the, George uh, Miller, George Lucas. Sorry. Yes. Who, I've never heard of him. Lucas. I thought you were talking uh, about George Miller. He was no, the guy who did babe, right? He also did the Mad Max movie. I, I could have sworn I think, this. I think George Miller was, was he still in college then? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he, yeah. He's a, was he making films then? Yeah, in the early eighties, he was okay. Yeah, George Miller, he's um, the guy who did Mad Max. He, oh uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that before guy. that, he was a he was an ER doc. He worked. Uh, he's an emergency medicine doctor. There you go. Okay, so it's that George Miller. Oh no, yeah. I'm glad we cleared that up. Okay, just um, making sure. I wanted to make sure when you said George. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of the one of the Georges. Anyway, there's not too many Georges making movies now. I guess they're, they're, they're out of fashion, aren't they? Yeah. No, um, sorry, I was. Uh, uh, but but do carry on, please. You were you were telling so, us. Yeah. That... <laughs> I remember uh, we were on the um, we were building puppets for the Dark Crystal, so this would be um, nineteen, like the back end of nineteen eighty, maybe early eighty one. And I remember mm. at that time hearing about uh, Jim Henson wanting to use uh, digital puppetry. So in other yeah. words, um, you know what we'd now know as motion capture puppetry, where um, a puppeteer could could. Um, puppeteer a cg character in real time 
Mm. And he finally got to do that, I think, in, uh, was it 1986 for uh, for Waldo, um, the, the little flying character that was in the Jim Henson hour and is can now still be seen in the uh, Muppet 3D uh, movie at, uh, in, in Florida, in Disney in Florida. So, so you know, these visionaries were always looking ahead to, to seeing what, what could be done and that we're not doing yet. You know, technology... Um, is always going to be coming at us whether we like it or not. And the same goes for AI for that matter. I mean, you know, it's it's just yet another new thing that people are going to both fear, hate and love and welcome in and utilize and use badly and use well, you know. So, <clears throat> so, so yeah, I saw basically everything go from film to, to digital. Um, now, I, I saw Toy Story and, of course, that was the first, you know, 3D full-length animated film and it was groundbreaking because it had uh engaging characters and story and was very well done um so i sort of saw this in a way as doing for for modern day animation what jim henson did to puppetry so i was really interested in how could i um use animation as another way to bring things to life so i made it my business to get recruited by pixar and uh, got to then fly over to San Francisco and, and work on uh, Toy Story 2 and A Bug's Life. Now, I think A Bug's Life, I think that was the one that was the first all digital film from from start to finish to projection. Uh, I believe it was, it was the first ever, for, for at least for a feature film, I think. I think it was Bug's Life. Mm. Um, so that was kind of a landmark thing right there. Um, and then, of course... Um, for a while, uh, the industry was, had moved over to fully digital, uh, and film was never used again. But then, when we were working on the uh, the last uh, trilogy, Star Wars trilogy, um, of course, uh, JJ brought uh, film back, and they had to make some new film stock, and they made new lenses for the cameras and that kind of thing. So that was quite quite neat. Although they were using some uh, digital cameras for certain low light, and I think maybe certain effect shots. So it wasn't a hundred percent shot on film. There's been a few but, films um, recently, um, uh, that film Malk that Netflix put out, where uh, David Fincher actually used an incredible suite of digital effects to add in the film grain of sort of 1940s and 1950s mm. uh, lens-based effects and make it look like they weren't using digital cameras. And we've reached the point where we're using digital now to simulate the idea that yeah. maybe we're not using digital and we've gone back. In a weird way. Yeah, adding that bloom and those mm. sort of those artifacts that 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 natural yeah. chemicals light Lovely on, on film. Yeah, the texture that you get, the real grittiness. And it's great because it removes mm. it from reality. You know, that's why we we generally gravitate towards twenty four frames per second instead of like sixty, right? Because it's yeah. just it's just less less real. I don't know, and we, you know, I don't know what that is. Our brain does something different. We're slightly more removed from it, and it's a little bit more magical and and uh, not, you know, it's Im imperceivable. But but well, but that that sort of that flicker is there, and and uh, um, but yeah, there's just something about that look that I think still has yet to be improved upon. Mm. So yeah, 
you know, I've, uh, I've always been more of a fan of practical effects than I have been of, of dig, you know, digital effects, like in a movie, because when you're, yeah. when you have something concrete that you're getting a good performance out of, you know, that the actor can interact with, as opposed to a tennis ball on a stick with a photocopy of what the character is supposed to look like taped to the C stand, <laughs> Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, like yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I, I like it's, it seems to me like, um, just like with everything else, like people are saying like the, the best chess players, you know, like once, once, uh, once the, the, the computer chess got to be, so it can beat any human, um, it was a human working in concert with a computer that would get, you know, that would be able to beat, uh, the best computer chess player. Like it was a human, you know, human intervention, just like with that, it seems like the most convincing effects these days are practical effects that get digital enhancement. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely seen, uh, I mean, the, the practical stuff never ever completely went away a lot of people you know when i do sh signings at shows a lot of people sort of tell me you know they talk to me as though puppets are a thing of the past now and everything's digital and um they're always quite shocked when i say actually no you know everything we're doing now is all fully practical uh you know all the all the puppets are, are all in camera there's no not even for i'd say for 99.9 percent .9 of everything there's not even any cg enhancement on anything that we're doing Wow. Uh, now is you know we we we've got that good with it all as well and and again the smart producers and directors know that the audience would rather see something practical um i remember when we were doing um little shop of horrors and that was in 1986 oh and and we knew that cg was being talked about and it was coming and that it was on its way there were early things and we were there were like dozens and dozens of us pushing these this heavy rubber around on these giant cables on sticks to try and to make it to talk. And, and uh, we rehearsed for months on that thing. And, and, you know, we'd built up these big sort of neck muscles from, from doing all this stuff for months and months. But, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was kind of painful though. I mean, I ended up hurting myself a little bit for a while uh, near the end of the film to, on the, on the big giant plant. But uh, I remember I was thinking, you know, when are they going to invent CG? Because this is ridiculous. Why are we doing this the hard way? We can, we can just do it all on computers. And of course, um, you know, that became true with Jabba the Heart. And and ultimately, everyone just loved the the practical rubber Jabba uh, the best in the end. And he could hardly do anything, really. He, you know, he couldn't move that much and he couldn't do very much. But he was real, you know. Yeah. Uh, once you've seen him, you don't forget him. Yeah, you know, it's it's just he was there, and you just can't beat that. There are some things that you just cannot do, um, you know, practically, obviously. Certain things that are, are a certain, if they're just uh, too big or too small or too fast or too weird, too, you know, things that just go against physics, I guess, um, or that are too dangerous to do, yeah. um, then by all means, you know, we can we can do things. I mean, they, they've done things in the past where they've changed dialogue and had to redo lip sync on, on mouths um in post just because they've had to but you know they've shot stuff so that so that that kind of thing happens but i'm seeing more and more now um like in the last bunch of mo star wars movies there's been very little green screen people assume that there's a lot but there's hardly anything and uh, it's kind of used just the, more for set extensions and things like that than anything um they tend to build everything for real and use hundreds of uh of uh supporting actors and things like that so so very little digital crowds as well. Um, it's great, you know. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I think creators are starting to to realize what is possible now with practical, and even for stunts as well. You know, that's another element 
uh, that we bump up against sometimes and, and run into. And they've kind of gone back to more practical uh, mm. uh, stunt work as well. So it's yeah. really good. I think there's, it's just a growing up and maturing, really. Yeah. You know, working in integrating the new tools, kind of like when you have a kid and you give them the new toy, that's all they want to play with for, you know, for a few yeah. weeks. And then it, get, it gets integrated into the overall system of play that they have. Abs um, absolutely. Yeah. It, it sounds like you do a range of things, you know, um, it sounds like, uh, do you design and, and then also sometimes execute people's artistic vision or collaborate with the writers or directors? Is those, it sounds Ideally, like those yeah. are all the things that you do. Um, what do you prefer to do? If someone were to give you mm. your brothers. I do like performing. I like it when I get to really act with something good. I like to chew on some stuff. I like to be in front of the camera. So that's always good. Um, but I also like the, the, the creation phase too. So, so I love a blank sheet of paper and a pencil, you know, because anything is possible at that point. So, so creating an idea, creating a character, creating a world um, and getting to direct that and, bake that cake with all those those raw elements uh i think is is also exciting so so you know they're all they're all different parts of the brain um and i think it's really good to to push oneself to do as many different things as possible uh, to keep things fresh for sure. so are, are you the one who is responsible for designing the boil and how to get ahead in advertising oh yeah the boil the boil and how to get in ad, how to get ahead in advertising. It's not a film that everybody knows. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> responsible for designing it. They brought me in to perform it. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, British film, handmade films. Uh, George Harrison's film company and um, uh, what was his name? Bruce Robinson, I think, was the uh, director mm, yeah, and writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, who had uh, had a great success with uh, with Nail and I. So, uh, you know, small, low budget, independent British films, but it did very well. So, so how to get ahead was the, the next one for those guys. Um, I think Bruce, I believe Bruce actually voiced the boil, although he didn't get credit. <laughs> he for did. That. Yeah. He did, did. I think, I think that was his voice on that. Oh yeah. Handsome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, was it his idea to give it the mustache or was that yours? I suspect it was probably his, he, uh, yeah, being the director and, and the visionary, uh, I imagine so. And also that was to, just, I guess, distinguish him from from uh, Richard E. Grant's character as well, I would well, imagine. So they, We were watching the film was... and um, when we were all talking about the film and everything and sort of digging into what does it mean? What does this represent? And uh, yeah. I, th I think it was me who was saying, well, ah, the moustache, this is clearly a class thing. This is a comment on on class mobility in the 80s and everyone thought i was very mm. clever about that so i think that's why the mustache was there clearly yeah yeah i mean you know, <laughs> yeah, you know a, a mobile phone and, and a, oh, a yeah. pager uh, yeah, well, and all that. uh yeah there's definitely a i think that was a big part of it for sure um i think there was there was a the script originally had a different ending as well oh where i think yeah, how about that? See, you learn something new. And um, I think the original ending was the the world ended up uh, uh, blowing up, basically. It, you know, it, it got nuked or something. Mm. And that was the end of the world. That was the end of the movie. So they didn't do that in the end. But that was one option that they had. So. <laughs> yeah, and no, instead they went out on uh, they went out on Jerusalem and and Holst and uh, you know with him on that hill. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like yeah. uh, speaking speaking like bring bring it back to kind of your your realm. Um, 
so like that's that's the movie that that we held recently held our conclave on um which is you know when we get our society together and 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 analyze and scrutinize films excellent for their potential to cause uh, cinemania um absolutely yes it, it's a, it's a, it's getting worse isn't it cinemania don't yeah. you think yeah it every is every day yeah it's uh uh but it, like like speaking of 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 how to get ahead in advertising you've got mm. a very muscular and athletic performance from richard e grant a lot of yelling a lot of jumping a lot of running around a <laughs> lot of you know really intense you know like 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 neck cords standing out do you do you recall any problems or hiccups with uh, all the prosthetics um and puppetry going on on him no, actually, uh, but strangely, everything went really well. I mean, Richard himself, of course, was, uh, I think he loved it. You know, he, he really took took it on board and worked with us uh, very nicely. Um, yeah. So now he, he, again, something you may not know, but Richard E. Grant started out as a puppeteer. I did not oh. know that. Yeah, that's, he, that's, he told me himself. That's how he became an actor. So when he was a kid in, I think it was South Africa, um, growing up, he would, uh, put on puppet shows and charge his, uh, his, his friends money to see the shows. And that's how he actually got into acting. That's brilliant. So, I love it. Yeah. So there we go. So, so I mean, for the most part, I, th I think at one point, um, one of the wells collapsed or snapped on the, on the c controls uh, in mid take when he was uh, in the bathroom looking in the mirror. Mm. But, um, but other than that, everything went, went fine, you know, so 86, everything was still all cable controlled um so we weren't doing really any radio control stuff or anything like that so we were definitely uh tethered to him uh for sure <laughs> that must have been an, a real experience <laughs> it, it was yeah it was all right though um to this day though i still have a problem with uh ketchup and fish fingers because he was in the hospital oh, bed and remember he was stuffing his face scene, with yeah just gobbling up and down. <laughs> so he i was under the bed uh, there was a hole in the in the I think near the pillow where where the boil starts to to grow and yeah. push up. Yeah, um, yeah. When the nurse has left, so I was under there operating that, uh, and of course, unfortunately, under the bed was his spit bucket. <laughs> so you know, you can imagine after half a day of of all the different <laughs> angles and takes, this thing was I was just getting so nauseated with the smell of this thing, and to this day, I still have a problem with that. So, oh, but that's a hazard of of doing what we do, right? Yeah, no, those are the things I love. I love the the production stories, you know, from various different <laughs> people. Like, um, you know, uh, like it seems like every movie you work on, you come away with some fun, weird story. I'll have to tell some. This is not fit for for an audience, but at some point, I'll have to tell people the kangaroo <laughs> story. What happened with a, a live kangaroo on a set? Oh boy! Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, awkward teenage kangaroo being an awkward teenage kangaroo. <clears throat> I'll let you you can fill in the rest but I already did <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I love uh you know that those are the, those are the stories that like people don't get to see I mean the, especially even if it's a movie that's as loopy as how to get ahead in advertising which yeah. is a loopy movie like you watch it and you just like feel like you've I don't know like it, it feels like you've you've done too much of the wrong kinds of substances and <laughs> um <laughs> well, yeah, they, those guys probably did. Yeah, uh, I was too young and innocent, of course. That was a 1987, I think we filmed that. Yeah, I believe at Shepperton Studios, I think. That um, yeah. no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't implying that you were, but I mean, when one feels that way, when when like this is what I mean yeah. about the film being a source of cinemania, you come away with it feeling as if you had, um, 
one of the one of the symptoms is you come away feeling as if you if you've you've done a variety of substances but like but hearing the stories that the audiences <laughs> can't possibly know that that only people who work uh, on the set can have you know fun stories um do you have other stories you you would uh from from other experiences that you're like oh here's here's a fun one i probably do um and but it will be here all day and, and yeah good point uh, <laughs> and yeah you know, it's funny though sometimes I, I remember things that i hadn't thought about in like you know 20 or 30 years and they just pop into your head it's like oh yeah you know something will trigger that and that part of your memory will open up it's it's kind of cool so uh yeah there's just so much though i mean main thing is to uh you know you have to sort of be professional when you're on set but but uh inside you can still be that kid saying wow this is so amazing you know this is so fun this is so great it's so yeah. magical and yeah. never boring that's the thing every every day on set is is so different to the one before yes um so yeah i love that i love that's, that it is never boring it is definitely <laughs> that it is not boring <laughs> frustrating cold. you know exhausting cold you know tiring <laughs> uh yeah. but never boring no um, that's right did you do any other stuff with handmade films or was this the only one you did that was the only thing uh, my uh, buddy uh, mike edmonds um of course had done uh um time bandits he was mm. one of the time bandits um so uh so he he was a lot closer i think to those guys uh, than i than i was i remember um uh when we were rehearsing the the boil puppet um ray cooper came by and of course he was one of the producers uh for handmaiden for the films and he was the like percussionist for for so many of the of the uh uh, George Harrison's uh, tracks and and uh, I assume the traveling Wilburys and I don't know what else. So so yeah, if, I don't know if you know who Ray Cooper is, but yeah, but he was he's a well very well known musician. Um, but uh, so he was also part of Handmade, so I got to meet him just the one time. But very talented guy. But I actually, didn't I didn't really see George. Yeah, so you can look him up. I didn't yeah, speaking uh, of George's. really see George though. <laughs> Yeah, the, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Another George filmmaker. That's three now. Okay, we're going for the hat trick. Yeah, George Harrison. Um, he he used to be a Beatle. Yes, not the insect, but of the group. Yeah, uh, Beatle mania, different to uh, Cinemania. Oh yes. I, so uh, that's a yeah. whole other podcast. We don't talk to them. Yeah, it's, no, a, thought... it's a, another bunch of guys. Yeah, and I thought that was Beatle in a cavern somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, meaning yeah, there you go. Beetle, so Nimi, so, uh, so I didn't really see George as, uh, during the stuff we were doing necessarily, but I did get to meet him. He had a, an office in, an, I think it was in Neil's Yard in London, and it was just this little tiny windy place on a fifth floor. Um, so I got to meet him and shake his hand uh, then in, in his office, basically, which was kind oh, of cool. cool. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, he was nice, though. Yeah, absolutely. Smart, <laughs> smart guy, you know. Very creative, very nice, and and uh, more power to him for having a, a film company. You know, I think that was just a, I suppose a no, a hobby, a love of his, I would imagine. Yeah, you know the 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 story. If you haven't ever if you haven't ever read it, there's a great book out called "Very Naughty Boys: um, The Story of Handmade Films," and it kind of goes into its oh, foundation. Really? Yeah, like no, the whole thing. Huh. We we talked about this on our show, um, but apparently, okay. like how handmade films came about was because uh, EMI had greenlit the life of Brian, but they hadn't read mm -hmm. the script. They were in pre-production. They had actually gone to Tunisia, were building sets in Tunisia when somebody mm -hmm. in EMI read the script and they're like, oh no, oh no, we can't have this, no. Yeah. And they, they called him up and they said, sorry, you're 
plumb out of luck. And Eric Idle, who had met George Harrison when they uh, shared a joint in the projection room over um, a screening of Monty Python, the Holy Grail, um, Dennis O'Brien, uh, like, like he got together with Dennis O'Brien and they mm. did an emergency flight out to LA to, to George Harrison's flat in LA. And he just happened to be having a party and they got together and they said, Hey, George, uh, EMI just boned us. You know, we're, we're left hanging. We've got sets that are half built. We're trying to make this movie called the life of Brian. And he told, you know, gave him the pitch and George's like, yeah, I got you. And he just, he said, I'll, I'll, how much do you, how much do you need? And he told him, and I think it was something on the order of of I don't know, like I don't think it was 40 million it may have been like four and a half million or something like that but basically they had a full budget and he's like yeah I got you no problem mm -hmm. and that's how handmade yeah. film got started ah uh, very good very good well I love time bandits so you know it's a great great classic oh yeah I mean yeah as a kid as a kid time bandits for me was one of my favorite films so good but along with the dark crystal actually as well oh wow uh, I remember well I, I saw the dark crystal I was probably a bit too young for it Oh yeah, I remember seeing it yeah. on TV, and I remember I didn't really believe what I'd seen. I thought I, that I dreamed it later. Wow! Yeah. I was, thinking, I, think no, I was what, a bit what, too young for it too, and I worked on yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> especially the especially that whole vital essence bit that that had to have been a, a, a bit scarring for a young person. <laughs> Perhaps, uh, hopefully, yeah, yeah, that was the best part. Yeah, but yeah, um, that was good. Yeah, the special effects uh, puddling that uh, they had. These vacuum tubes rigged into it and everything. It was great. Oh, that was terrifying. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of, of moments of cinemania that live on and, uh, you know, mm. for, forever. Rot our brain. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So that's the thing. Cinemania, right? I mean, when we, when we absorb what we see on screen, I think it does change our brain, right? Isn't that what cinemania is? It yes. is, yeah. There, there yeah. comes a point where you forget you're watching a film and sitting in a chair, and for a few moments, sometimes you're there, and it all just washes over you and and has does. But not only that, but after you've left, you're never quite the same again. Absolutely, yeah. That's this is why this is why it's important to to scrutinize and and try to find a way to sequester these films from the public. Yeah, we're going to stop all yeah. of that. We're going to put yeah. all of that to one side, make sure it never happens again. Yes, hence, protect hence, the public. Yeah, the some films maybe more than others but anyway yes <laughs> <laughs> well um is there uh let's see um i know we're we're running thin on time here but no uh, i'm sure no i'm keep going keep going okay let's see here then um we were we were bringing it back to to uh, a little bit about handmade um he said uh, one of the things that I thought was pretty funny is Eric Idle described George Harrison as the only morally good person whom rock and roll has ever produced. Uh, what's your take on that, having met the guy? Um, I'm sure he's right. I, I, I'm i not qualified to comment, uh, <laughs> but he would know better than I, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, it seems it's with a lot of musicians and, you know, for the most part, they're all actually really cool people and uh, sometimes... Um, you know, they might show up late. It seems to be a musician thing. They're always late for stuff, late for the shoots and whatever, but not always. But um, no, they, I, I love it. Yeah, they're very, very creative. Um, uh, slightly different breed to actors. Yeah, I can I can see that. Um, the It just seems like it's a, it seems a particularly like, like with a movie like how to get ahead in advertising it's it, it it's it feels george harrison e to me like the message of yeah. the film feels like something that he was on board with 
um, mm-hmm. you know, especially the time that it came out, the critique of, of 80s consumerism and shit capitalism, yeah. you know, like it, it, it was very much like while the rest of us were being distracted with with, you know, with the the movies like i don't know predator or uh, total recall mm. or you know whatever current action fair was like there's this there's this little movie that came out that was that was really thumbing its nose at at all of this saying hey folks don't don't fall asleep watching these movies this one we want to try to keep you awake for this yeah so so um would with what with cinemania in mind would you recommend people at least see how to get ahead so that they know how dangerous it could be absolutely well, we, yes. we we make it our business to warn people that they're in grave danger of having their minds open to potentially dangerous ideas if they okay, watch these okay. films and uh, they should definitely be aware of that fact and be fully aware that these films could lead to all sorts of strange thoughts and interesting experiences. Yeah, is- most most definitely. I think most people probably listening to this now and almost every person that I know has not even seen that film. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can you can thank Andy. This is the first time I'd seen it when when we mm. came, when we convened our conclave on it, and Andy <laughs> submitted this as uh, as as his uh, yeah, as his uh, choice. Well, I remember again as a kid, it, it came on Channel Four back when Channel mm. Four used to really make a point of of emphasizing that kind of film, like weird, odd little yeah. films, and putting them on. I used to love it. I was fixed yeah. to Channel Four, and I had this vague memory. Wasn't there this film with like a talking boil thing? And I went back and I thought, ah. We have to we have to look at this one again. Coming back to it as a as an adult, it hit me in a very different way. As a kid, I just right. thought this is this is hilarious. He's, he's grown a boil and it's talking, but now it's like, <laughs> oh, this is a warning. There's there's real mm. danger in the world and this is talking about it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, Richard got to work on the last Star Wars film as well. So mm-hmm. uh yeah, we've we've reconnected online a few times and and had a had a laugh about back then you know he's always been very nice so i, I had a question what is a star war <laughs> a star war it's a war in the stars or a war it could be a war involving stars sort of a sort of a Hollywood. cosmic conflict a, a, a cosmic a, conflicts or a, stor- a, a solar struggle <laughs> yeah i don't know I, i'm gonna have to get familiar with this this is a cosmic a, conflicts yeah i like the sound of that something yeah that's, um, really pilot that, that's actually a title of a of a of a uh, christian science fiction movie i worked on oh in 2008 goodness. and uh it was science christian yeah it was it it, <laughs> it it was as much fun as it sounds like that was the one that had the, kang- <laughs> the kangaroo story came from that movie the kangaroo okay that makes sense then yeah yeah but um uh yeah so that that the um the I had I had seen with Noel and I a number of times. It's actually one of, uh, one of my father's favorite movies, and you know, so I watched that a bunch as a teenager. So I didn't even know oh, they okay. had this other one that was basically yeah. you might even say like a, a partner piece to with Noel right. and I. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, but um, let's see here. I think there's some more questions. Yeah. I have more questions, but they were all kind of like whether we would get around, not to get around to it, but like, I don't need to necessarily ask all of them. I just kind of threw everything against the wall and wanted well, to see like where the co- where got. the conversation would lead. And, um, but yeah, ultimately, uh, actually I had two other ones to ask before we okay. uh, roll out of here. One of which mm-hmm. is, um, you mm-hmm. so you, we know you worked on a number of really iconic films. We've kind of established that. What's one you didn't work on that you like to watch? You're like, man, I really wish I'd worked on that. 
Mm. Are you talking about from the time period from when I started working in the biz, or can I go back to any time ever? Oh, any time, any any era you like. Let's see. I mean, from from when I began making films, if there was one film I could have had something to do with, I would have loved to have been a part of. Uh, at least looking back now, would be uh, Back to the Future. Oh. Uh, that would oh. have been a, a cool. Uh, you know, I got to work with Bob Zemeckis, of course, uh, and his camera guys and lighting people and everything uh um on roger rabbit and so that was made just before back to the future two and three so uh, i sort of almost uh bumped into that whole stuff but that would have been a cool one to work, have worked on um to go back further i would say it would have been if i if i could if i had a magic lamp it would have been great to have worked on a hitchcock film um, and then to go back even further to be in a Laurel and Hardy uh, <laughs> short, I think would have been pretty cool back in the maybe the thirties, you know. So, yeah. So there's a few there. <laughs> well, that's a, certainly a fine mess you've gotten yourself into. It certainly is. <laughs> um, what is a <laughs> film that you feel like um, is, in your opinion, the best example? one of the best examples of of your particular profession it's just the sort of like the, the chef's kiss of of um effects you know like a, mm. you mean like a puppet animatronic effect mm. stuff yeah whether it's a you know that whether it's digitally enhanced or not but so you know whether it's just puppetry animatronics mm. just a thing that you're like you watch this and you're like this is the thing this is why i do what i do even if it's you know if it's something you might have done or if it's something that you've seen that you're like that you keep coming back to that is just for you your iconic example of of your trade why is my hang on my laptop's about to it's not plugged in hang on one sec hold it right there <laughs> All right. okay yeah my laptop's not Sorry, we we don't we don't edit anything. Editing is impossible for for an audio medium. I think that yeah, it's totally impossible. I think I think we're back. I didn't want us to get uh, there. We are. Right. I didn't uh, want to get um, cut it off there. So uh, let's see. That was a good way of avoiding the question, wasn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a question. I didn't. Oh, there was a question. That's a tough one. I mean, um, let's see. I I probably haven't seen everything that's out there. Um, I would say there's some stuff that I really enjoyed doing that I think was my, what I'm hoping will have raised the bar a little bit in, in terms of animatronics, uh, that's not out yet. Hmm. So we're going to have to wait until, uh, either 24 or 25. I'm not sure yet. Okay. Um, but there's something that, that was, uh, pushed me particularly hard and, uh, and we're hoping, I think, I haven't seen the finished thing, but I think it might take things to just maybe on a very subtle level, but definitely uh, to, to, to another level uh, that I have maybe not been able to do before. Okay. So, but I can't really say what that is. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, but cryptic yeah. plug. We'll we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. But what? So it's something people can go and and you know <laughs> find on a shelf. You know, a VHS tape they could grab somewhere, or it doesn't have to VHS. Uh, it could be <laughs> obviously streaming. But like, what's something you... that somebody could go see that you like? You know, for 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 Mike today to look at a movie and be like, this this is awesome. This is an you know this is this is the this is my you know this is my shining. Uh, I don't know if it's a shining achievement, but like th this mm. is the thing that stands out in my mind when I think about you know puppetry and animatronics. This is the thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a bunch of a bunch of things. I mean, I would say 
only because they've sort of come back around again. I think Jim would have been very pleased uh, if if he were alive. Uh, things like um, uh, the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, uh, they're, they're just very unique. Uh, mm. The Dark Crystal was the very first animatronic uh, or puppet film ever. So mm -hmm. that was the first. And then just four years later, he made Labyrinth sort of as an antidote to that, which then had sort of humor and, and uh, humans and music in there. So uh, to try and make that a little more successful and, and accessible. There were some great things in there, puppet-wise, that uh, uh, in, in both those films that, that uh, I think are definitely pinnacles of, of, of good animatronic puppetry. Um, and what else? Well, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have the puppets uh, interacting with humans as well in Labyrinth in, in ways that I, did, I hadn't seen before, certainly. Yeah, so there's, uh, there's one... Seeing a puppet uh, interacting with a puppet is one thing, but then it's like, well, that's an actual person, and you know, interacting yeah, no, one to one—it's it's magical. Yeah, and if the yeah. the thing is, if the puppet's doing its job correctly, or the character is doing its mm. job uh, correctly, or the, the the performer, then then uh, the the actor that's with them will always totally uh, buy into the puppet and ignore the puppet mm. below. It, it happens almost every single time. They they completely forget that there's a human underneath. Um, so uh yeah um and even things like that again something that's kind of come back around again uh has been uh the uh, muppet christmas carol oh um, yeah and that's sort of become a, like a classic now you know who knew right it was a it was a hard one because it was the first big thing we did after jim's passing yeah was it like 92 or something i was a puppet coordinator on that as well as uh a puppeteer and uh, i'm singing on the soundtrack and everything as well oh, well. oh so man. uh that I, yeah, and it's it's just it's it's nice because it sort of comes back around every year, and it'll find new audiences, and it's it's become sort of a favorite. So uh, it's hard to ignore that one as well in terms of of just pure puppetry, you know, not mm. animatronics or anything. It's just just pure puppetry. And, oh yeah, uh, it's 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 pure joy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my girls yeah, love that one too. That's that's their yeah. favorite take on a Christmas Carol. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Who directed that one? Do you recall? That was Brian Henson. So, okay. yeah, that was Brian's first film. Okay. Uh, he'd, he'd done TV stuff before, and uh, Jim Jim had been sort of grooming him, uh, at least as far as I know, since uh, Mother Goose stories that we made uh, in the early 80s for Disney Channel. I was trying to remember if it was uh, – oh, that, oh, that was uh, it was Muppet Treasure Island at Kirk Thatcher directing. Uh, let's see. Who directed that? Oh, no, it wasn't Kirk did uh, Muppet Wizard of Oz. I think Brian did uh, – Treasure Island, actually, yeah. Really? That oh. was Brian. Okay, I have to go back. Anyway, I Kirk. Think, um, yeah, IMDb, was... forget that. So, yeah, yeah. Kirk did uh, Muppets Wizards of Oz. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's, a, he's, he's a buddy of mine. He was actually on, uh, he was attached to direct the feature that I had, that, that the money fell to. Uh, okay, that might have been it. Maybe at one point he was going to be doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kirk's yeah. great. Kirk's done loads of stuff. And uh, has, again, we've bumped into each other Um I guess since I first met Kirk on the Jim Henson hour on the pilot in Toronto. So that would be like oh, 86, nice. I think 1986, but he also uh, was involved in nine Num, my um, star Wars character uh, back at ILM. So he was, he was part of making the mold and doing film tests on it and stuff like that back in 80, what would that be? 81, 82. Yeah. yeah. So, so again, we go back sort of 40 years. Goodness. That is a, that is a ways. Yeah, he's a <laughs> he's he's a he's a uh, decent sort. I've I've hung out with him a couple of times. Um, well, you I know, wish, anyone I'd like that likes a good better. tiki drink uh, is all right with me. <laughs> good, good rum, 
mix. Yep. Well, um, yeah, if you find yourself out here this way, we'll have to get you your best uh, best Mai Tai I've ever had. If, you're, if you like, uh, oh, if you like yeah. tropical drinks, next time you're out in, um, in uh, this this part of the neck of the woods, I will I will get you to a place that will thank make you. you. I love, uh, yeah, I love an old school traditional Mai Tai. You know, it yep. doesn't have pineapple juice or anything like that. So it goes in, invented in the 1940s. So uh, those are the ones to have. Yeah. I actually make them myself too here in, in my kitchen. So. Well, not all the time, not for breakfast or anything, honestly. Just, just... <laughs> Wouldn't judge no, you honest, if you did. Really. <laughs> but. So, yeah, that's good stuff. Kirk's great, though. So, yeah. Okay. Well, um, I don't know. Andy, do you have other questions or, or should we let this man get on with his day? I think I think we'll have to let him go. I could go on about the dark crystal for a while, actually. Uh, just, think, just thinking back, I'm uh, going right. back in my mind to it, but I'm not going to. But uh, it's that's the one for me that really sticks out. I have to say, it's um, you know I've not thought about it in a while. And as soon as you mentioned it, immediately I'm back in that room watching the telly, just thinking. What yeah, the earth is yeah. This? I, I was pleased that when I saw the Blu-ray because it, I thought it just looked so good. It it, mm. uh, it had so much detail and and, and color accuracy. Uh, it was kind of like being back on set again. You know, it's quite quite nostalgic really uh so yeah and plus back then they used to make documentaries properly where you'd have a whole hour long of behind mm. the scenes and they would actually tell you how they made things properly not just like two minute little puff pieces and stuff so. oh yeah and sometimes they'd bring the puppets onto blue peter or something and I remember there a few times they would do that. They'd say, "Oh, there's a film coming out, children, and here we're going to talk about some of the things you're going to see." And they'd have like, "Did you see the uh, uh, Dark Crystal Blue Peter thing? I did that as well." I was, oh, I don't know if you <laughs> saw that. Yeah, we did a. Uh, I was I was the Skeksis and uh, with uh, Peter. Was it Peter Duncan, the the guy that was the actor? And um and then Fizzgig was on Sarah Green's knee or behind her shoulder or something. So I did mm. Fizzgig as well on Blue Peter live television. Yeah, I'm pretty oh, sure I would have been watching. And Russell Harty, did you ever see the Russell Harty show, where oh. Jim Henson and Frank Oz were on that, and I was performing a Skeksis on that too. Again, live TV, terrifying, and absolutely. Again, terrifying. yeah. Th oh, this is about four in the afternoon. You can't be showing Skeksis to children at four in the afternoon. <laughs> that's just it was. That's, that's it's so way wrong. too Skeksy for them. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank well you. played, sir. Well played. Um, <laughs> what do you think about the Dark Crystal? Um, very briefly, what do you think about the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance? Um, let's see. Well, uh, what do I think about it? I think a lot of things about it. A lot of my friends worked on that. And um, I was actually kind of next door working on the Rise of Skywalker right around the same time. So I'd run into into um, uh, some of my mates, you know, in the high street and things like that. Uh, I would have liked to have worked on it. Um, but I didn't get the chance. Uh, I unfortunately it didn't. I mean, I, I know they had a second series kind of outlined, and uh, I've spoken to a lot of people recently that have told me they really, really, really wished it had gone to season two. Um, but I imagine it was a, a, a viewer numbers versus uh budget uh issue, I suppose. Yeah. Maybe it cost it too much is, yeah. compared to uh how many viewers they got. So so, you know, with hindsight, perhaps if they'd simplified it a little bit, kept the cost down a bit, perhaps they could have made it a season two. There was a lot going on uh, in a lot of characters, a lot of puppets in that show. And I wonder, I don't know if that was why, you know, why it might have cost too much to have made a second series. I'm not really sure. So, um, I, yeah. Um, I, I liked it. But for me, it was kind of like eating an entire family size Christmas pudding at a sitting. 
Like it was really, <laughs> really good, but it's also really rich, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think there are some parts where I thought were, were more accessible to younger uh, viewers. And then there were some parts that were a bit kind of scary with the whole, like with the whole eyeball yeah. thing that might've yeah. been a bit for older. So I wasn't, I was like, okay, who is this for? I wasn't, completely sure who that who the audience was for it yeah but that's just me you know uh, what do i know uh well before we turn your list do you have anything you want to plug want to plug want to plug uh, let's see hang on um i well beginning of the year i've got a my own uh new website that i'm opening up um that goes back to what i said earlier about there's no one place on the internet that has everything that's correct about me. So I'm creating that myself and uh, that is called the Quinzone. And currently, uh, let's see, well, I've been, people have been able to, there's a QR code, but that doesn't really work on, on audio, does it? Um, <laughs> uh, where people can sign up and uh, get a, get notifications of when the site opens up for real and they can get a, a little chapter of my, I wrote a little uh, book called uh, Mike Quinn's Magic Moments. And, and each chapter has a magic moment. One being when, uh, when I first started working for Jim and, and uh, different, different uh, high points in my, in my life, my career. So, so that I'm, I'm expecting January for that to be open. Mm. Um, the Quinn zone anyway, and people can find me on, on my sort of social medias and stuff, but I'm, I want to put on there, all the things that uh, I can't put up elsewhere on YouTube or on, on Facebook. And this, so this is a platform that I own and I'll be doing live streams from there and uh, just putting up a lot of archive material that no one has ever seen before and won't see elsewhere either. So I think that's kind of exciting. Oh, well, Fantastic. We'll, we'll put up links and things we can, we can, uh, Thank when you. we release this, put it on our, our website. We'll definitely have to plug all of that and have a look. Oh, I do yeah, appreciate sure. that. Oh, look, yeah. at that. thumb went out when I did hey. that. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, like I said, we will we'll plug all that across our own social media and uh, 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 awesome. when we do release our uh, our profile on Cinemania on you, um, we'll we'll send that your way so you can hear it. <laughs> I hope I'm not too cinematic. You know, there's, is there a cure for this stuff? Is there no? What do we do with it? No, it's no cure. You, you you get thrown into the deepest, darkest hole we can find, and we clang shut the door and make sure that nobody <laughs> well, ever finds you. Again. Well, that's like every day in my puppetry <laughs> career. How is that any different? <laughs> Well, the difference is, is that that's the the, the missile silo that the 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 um, video store is built over is this uh, <laughs> you know, abandoned missile silo. Yeah. So that's mm. the difference. And then there might be some uh, cannibalistic humanoid underground uh, um, people, mutant people. That's right, cannibalistic yeah, a lot humanoid of subterranean uh, things going on. Well, that's I think where where uh, filmmakers come from in the first place, isn't it? Yeah, the they're all a bunch of chumps. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So. Mm. Right. So who knows what's what's ahead, right? I mean, it's so hard to predict the future uh, right now. We're, we're sort of, I think, we're in the middle of, of so much change so so quickly in 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 this industry. Yeah, it's yes. Uh, you know, we can. That's another thing we could we could analyze to death is is where things where we you know where things have been and where things are going and how things are changing. But uh, I've heard it said that past is prologue. Who can say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna throw something at you. <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, Mike. We really appreciate your time um, and your generosity with it. 
and uh, absolutely we... thank you so much ethan and andy good to meet you and i'll see you in person before too long i hope as well but thank yeah. you so much for listening to me ramble on uh, us too uh, have a good evening and uh, we'll we'll catch up with you the next time we see you awesome take care now thanks a lot been bye. a pleasure thank bye you bye-bye <laughs> bye-bye That episode of the Cinemania Society was written and performed by Andy Slack, Daniel Scribner, Andrea Palladino, Alessa Luz Martinez, Hope Bravo, Ethan Ireland, and Zachariah Burks. Music by Carl Casey at Whitebat Audio. Incidental music and sound effects courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Visit our social media feeds on Facebook, Twitter, X, at TCS underscore Cinemania, and Reddit at r slash the Cinemania Society. If you really like what you've heard, visit us on Patreon and chuck us a couple bones, because making podcasts ain't free. The Cinemania Society is a product of the Cinemania Society, LLC.